2: Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a writer who started his own magazine at eight called Reader's Indigestion. It's a musician who was blessed in the womb by Stevie Wonder, and it's an improvisational musician and comic who's here to tell you...
0: It's... It's... Life.
2: Wire, with *We Live in Water* author Jess Walter, comic and musician Reggie Watts, and music from Telekinesis and Joshua James, it's all coming up on Live Wire Radio. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host Courtney Hallemeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to, and of course, music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Reggie Watts is here. Reggie is super awesome. Reggie uh, is an improvisational comic and musician who has the uncanny ability to let his mind run free and know that he will just catch up with it later. Um, And the last time that Reggie was with us, we talked to him about his brain, or more broadly, the brains of improvisational musicians. Uh, A few years ago, a doctor at Johns Hopkins named Charles Lim, who is also a jazz saxophone player and John Coltrane fan, did a study of the brains of improvisational jazz musicians, and he actually had them play improvised pieces while their heads were stuck in an MRI machine. Uh, The songs were titled, I Believe, Get Me the Hell Out of This Thing, and I Said on the Form I Was Claustrophobic. Um... And he learned one thing that you would expect, and it's that that part of the brain that dealt with self-expression and individualism was stimulated when they played. But the more important discovery was that another part of the brain got very quiet, and it was these two areas on the sides of the prefrontal cortex. And it's the part of the brain that edits, that self-monitors, that inhibits inappropriate behavior. Um, Let's just call this area the brains John Lithgow from Footloose. So had these jazz musicians, through practicing improvisation over a period of years, learned to shut up their internal judgmental minister who had lost his son, so he was understandably upset, but still, let's be honest, was dealing with it in a really unhealthy way by not allowing Kevin Bacon to dance? (laughs) Because if so, I want to start playing jazz piano. Um, Largely because my internal John Lithgow is a super busy guy. Um... He wakes up really early in the morning to be the first one to tell me that I do not wake up very early in the morning. Uh, He naps whenever I eat a jar of Nutella. What? Where'd you go? Um, But then he wakes up again anytime I want to dance. And we always hear that we should dance like nobody's watching, but I can't because he's watching. And if he's not going to let two-time Golden Globe winner Kevin Bacon dance, he's certainly not going to let me dance. Um... But I also want him to go away because, like everyone, I want to do creative things. And an appropriateness monitor couldn't be a more inappropriate companion when it comes to being creative. What was the last piece of art you truly loved that you would describe as appropriate? And don't say Michelangelo's David because I don't know if you've noticed, but that guy is not wearing any pants. We actually we had author Maria Semple on the show a few months ago, and she was a writer for Arrested Development and I asked her what she thought the particular magic of that writer's room was, and she said that the writers would just spend most of their time in the room just hanging out and cracking wise and saying some of the meanest, darkest, and most sexually inappropriate things to try to make each other laugh, and eventually one of them would say, "Okay, you know we have to get back to work and she 'd look up and the head writer, Mitch Hurwitz, would be at the typewriter just clicking away saying. Maria, can you repeat that last thing that you just said? So he was writing every word and just attributing it to members of the Bluth family on the show. So Hurwitz tricked them into thinking that they weren't working, so their internal editors took a coffee break. And maybe similarly, the magic of the jazz musicians is that they're playing, and not just playing music, but playing, like we did when we were six, when our internal editors were young too, and they hadn't learned yet to tell us that the red plaid bell bottoms didn't really go with our communion dress, or that we shouldn't do jazz hands in the cereal aisle, or (laughs) fall in love almost every single day. I know it's important that we all have a part of our brain that self-monitors. I know that without them, some people would be serial killers or thieves or Kardashians. (laughs) And and without self-editing, there would probably be a lot more terrible work out there, but I bet a lot of it would be amazing because some of our internal monitors are really overzealous. We're taught in school how to write and to paint and sometimes even to dance. So now that we know there's a way to do it, it would be great if they also taught a new class, one called How to Tell Your Internal Appropriateness Cop, Hey, can you shut the hell up for a second? I'm making something here. I would so take that class. Thanks. Thanks. Our first guest is a Seattle based indie rock band helmed by Michael Benjamin Lerner, whose first two CDs under the moniker Telekinesis were produced by Death Cab for Cuties' Chris Walla. While writing his last record, Lerner spent some purposefully uncomfortable months in Berlin, but for this next one, he road tripped to Austin, Texas, where he made the record in just two weeks with spoon drummer Jim Eno. The record's title, Dormarian, is the name of the street it was recorded on, a word which Lerner says has no origin, no description. It's like something from Lost. With songs from Dormarian, please welcome Telekinesis. Their new record is Dormarian.
3: Well, it's Pledge Drive Week, and we all know what that means.
2: It is time to call in with your pledges, or we'll keep talking, and you'll never hear Ira Glass's voice again.
3: (laughs) Carol, that sounded a little like a threat.
2: Did it? I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean it as a threat, at least not overtly.
3: We don't need to threaten our listeners to give, because public radio enriches their lives so much, they're compelled to give.
2: That is right, Peter. Public radio expands your brain. It makes you more informed and a lot more interesting.
3: Absolutely. Carol, how many times have you been at a party spouting some fascinating facts and thought... I couldn't be doing this without public radio.
2: (laughs) Happens all the time, Peter. But don't take our word for it. Let's hear from listeners. Hi, Greg, you have a story about how public radio has affected your life.
4: Yeah, this is Greg from Molala, Oregon. Uh, So last week there was a story about GMOs, and it was really scary. I don't totally remember what the letters stand for, but it was bad. (laughs) And I, I was able to tell my friends they should give, they should give Google a try before they ate anything because, you know, GMOs could be lying and waiting their food, and it might be like that movie where that guy bit into that mango and blood started coming out of his eyes, and he was like, What? Where's this blood coming from? And I felt like I might have saved a couple lives that day.
2: Okay. Well, well Greg, Greg has part of that story right. Your fruits or vegetables might be genetically modified, um, but we should just be really clear that consuming them does not necessarily lead to exsanguination of any kind. So let's, let's, just, let's hear from another listener about how public radio has made her more informed. Hi, I'm Molly Cliff Hilts, and I was at my husband's
4: company party at TJ Finnegan's last week, and I remember that story about the hawks. Well, at least I think it was hawks. It was hawks or monkeys, and they could play instruments. Well, they they could either play instruments or they lost their wings or arms, which scientists replaced with reanimated Japanese cucumbers or something. (laughs) Anyone, everyone was like, wow, she obviously knew something for a minute once, like right after she heard it, which impresses people, I am not gonna lie.
3: Wow! Molly, it sounds like you heard our story about Dr. Miguel Nicolaylis at Duke University, who was able to get a rhesus monkey to accurately control a robot arm with her brain.
2: Oh, that does sound familiar. Okay, I know we're focused on the pledge drive here, but we should also say, folks, if you need to take notes while you listen in order to retain some of this information, you should maybe do that.
3: Absolutely. Whatever it takes, Carol. Let's hear from William Brentfield. Sounds like William wants to talk about how a canned goods story we did last week has impacted his life. I assume he's talking about how canning vegetables can lower the nutrient values, William.
0: Yeah, um, hi, uh, this is William, formerly of Pittsburgh, PA. My, uh, My life has been completely changed by public radio. Uh, I was listening to this story last week about either solar power or natural gas or neurosurgery or back fat. And there was this scientist who had spent his whole life studying various types of canned goods because his dad was either a grocer or Jim Croce or a gastroenterologist. And it was... Something about how when legumes go bad, they will explode and rip your face off, and I told my coworkers around the old water cooler, and now we're all living on a farm in Canada, away from cans.
2: Okay, what is going on with you people? Oh, is this an attention span issue? Or well, my
3: understanding, Carol, is that with the Internet, attention spans have dropped over 35% from where they were in 2003. So that might be... Oh, we have another caller. Yes. <laughs> Tell us why you're giving to public radio today.
5: Yeah, I just heard the fact about the wingspan thing or whatever. Um, how will this affect the ornithological community? And can I... Also order a pizza from you because I don't actually remember who I'm calling. All righty.
2: All righty. We're going to end the pledge drive right there. Thank you so much for your stories about how public radio has affected your lives. That was Darius Pierce, Laura Faysmith, Trisha Ferguson, and Mr. Reggie Watts. You're listening to Livewire Radio, and if you just tuned in, that is unfortunate because you just missed the first ever radio broadcast of the 2013 World Championship Staring Contest. Spoiler alert, the cat won. (laughs) No worries, you can catch it on the podcast. There's still more to come. Stick around for author Jess Walter, improvisational comic Reggie Watts, music from Joshua James, and more from Telekinesis. We'll be right back. brought to you in part by whole foods markets back in the 19th century when you were on an old wooden sailing ship for nine months at a time it made sense to put a bunch of nitrates in your dinner but you're not on an old wooden sailing ship these days you're in a minivan and you need to get some corned beef for easter which is why all whole foods corned beef is free of pink salt and other nitrate heavy preservatives you can find more information including information about other delicious holiday meats at wholefoodsmarket.com Our next guest is a National Book Award finalist and the author of six novels, including The Financial Lives of Poets, which was Time Magazine's number two novel of the year, and Beautiful Ruins, a New York Times bestseller. His work has been translated into over 20 languages and published in Best American Short Stories, McSweeney's, Harper's, Esquire, and Playboy. His latest book, a collection of short stories called We Live in Water, includes a statistical abstract for his hometown that contains the fact on any given day in Spokane, Washington, there are more adult men per capita riding children's BMX bikes than in any other city in the world. (laughs) Reading an excerpt from that book with some help from Tricia Ferguson and Darius Pierce, please welcome Jess Walter to Livewire.
6: Thanks. This is from the story Virgo. This all began in late October. We'd had the same old fight with the same stale grievances Tanya had been lobbing at me for months, almost since the day I moved in. Blah-blah, stalled relationship. Blah-blah, stunted growth. Blah-blah, I worry that you're a psychopath. (laughs) I said I'd try harder, but she was in a mood.
5: No, Trent. I want you out of here now.
6: So I gathered my things. Four loads of clothes, shoes, CDs, action figures, and trading cards I carried to my car. I tooled around the Pearl, having conversations with her in my head, begging, yelling, until finally I crossed the bridge and drove toward my father's duplex in northeast. I parked on the dirt strip in front and beat on his door. I could hear him clumping around inside. My dad had lost a leg to diabetes. It took him a while to get his prosthetic on. When he answered, I said, Tanya threw me out. She said living with me was like living with a stalker. Uh, you always did make people nervous. <laughs> Have you been drinking? No. Well, Christ, Trent, why the hell not? (laughs) Before all of this, I loved my job. As a features copy editor for the Oregonian, I pulled stories off the wire, proofread copy, and wrote headlines for five pages a day. My favorite, because it was Tanya's favorite, was Inside Living. Page two of the features section, the best-read page in the O., with syndicated features like the crossword puzzle, the word jumble, celebrity birthdays, and Tanya's favorite, the daily horoscope. That's how we met, in fact, four months earlier, in a coffee shop where I saw her reading her horoscope. I launched our romance with the simple statement, I edit that page. (laughs) Within a week, we were dating, and a month later, in July, when I was asked to leave my apartment because the paranoid woman across the courtyard objected to my having a telescope, Tanya said I could move in with her. Each morning during those three glorious months, she'd pour herself a cup of coffee, toast a bagel, and browse the newspaper, arriving finally at Inside Living, her newspaper home. She'd make a careful fold and crease, set the page down, and only then would she speak to me.
5: Eleven down, films, blank peak?
6: Dante's?
5: Are you sure you don't see the answers the day before?
6: I told you, no. Of course, I did see the answers the day before. Hey,
5: it's Kurt Cameron's birthday. Guess how old he is. No idea. You edited this page yesterday.
6: That celebrity stuff comes in over the wire. I just shovel it in. You know I hate celebrities.
5: I think you pretend not to like celebrities just to make yourself appear smarter.
6: This was true. I do love celebrities.
5: Hey, look. I'm having a five-star day. If I relax, the answers will all come to me.
6: It's painful now to recall those sweet mornings, the two of us bantering over our page of the newspaper. And this is the strange part, the mystical part, some might say. On those days Tanya read that she was going to have a five-star day, she actually had five-star days. I began to notice that Tanya was even more open to my amorous advances when she got five stars. In fact, after our first month together, I began to notice that the only time Tanya wanted to have sex at all was when she got five stars on her horoscope. Then, one day in early October, when we'd stopped having sex altogether, I did it. I goosed her horoscope. (laughs) Virgo was supposed to have three stars, and I changed it to five. So sue me, it didn't even work. Obviously, though, that's where the idea came from, and yet I might have simply moved on after our breakup and not launched my horoscope warfare had Tanya not filed a no-contact order a mere two weeks after throwing me out. A no-contact order based on what? Well, you do drive over there every night after work and park outside her place. Yeah, but 800 feet? What kind of arbitrary number is that? Shall I carry a tape measure? And there's a tapas place around the corner from her condo. Am I just supposed to stop eating tapas? There's a Taco Bell over on ML King. Tapas, Dad, not tacos. Look, I
3: don't know what to tell you, Trent. You make people uncomfortable. When you were a kid, I thought something was wrong with your eyelids, the way you never blinked. I used to
6: ask your mom if maybe there wasn't some surgery we could try. This was my father. A woman breaks my heart, and his answer is to sew my eyelids shut. (laughs) But I suppose he tried. I suppose we all try. Life just isn't fair, I said. The old widower hobbled away on his prosthetic leg to get another drink. Yeah, well, I hope I'm not the jackass who told you it would be. The very next day, November 17, Virgo got the first of 13 straight one-star days. (laughs) Four stars, your creativity surges. Keep an eye on the big picture Virgo was supposed to read. I changed it to one star, watch your back. (laughs) Horoscopes are cryptic and open-ended.
5: You'll encounter an obstacle, but you are up to the task. A Capricorn may help.
6: In fact, I could argue that what clearly began as a way to spoil my girlfriend's day became a campaign to make horoscopes more useful. And I won't pretend that I didn't like the voice, the power that changing horoscopes gave me. In the office, I could finally say the things I've been holding inside all those years. For our new drama critic, Sharon Gleason, I wrote...
5: Libra, three stars. Those pants make you look fat.
6: (laughs) For the arrogant sports columnist, Mike Dunn...
5: Taurus, two stars. I hope your wife's cheating on you. (laughs)
6: for the icy young records clerk, Laura.
5: Cancer, would it kill you to smile at your coworkers?
6: Of course, there were complaints about the late November horoscopes. Thankfully, they were all routed to the inside living page editor, me. In my defense, some people actually preferred the new horoscopes, not Virgos, of course, since they were treated to day after day of stunning disappointment. One star, you should try to be less vindictive and disloyal.
5: One star, hope your new boyfriend doesn't mind your bad breath.
6: One star, you're not even that good at sex. (laughs) Yet despite my constant barrage of single star Virgo days, I got no response from her. Tanya had to know I was behind her run of bad horoscopes, but I heard nothing. Some days I thought she was taunting me by not responding. Other days I imagined she was so deeply mired in one-star hassles, traffic snarls, and internet outages that she was incapable of responding. Another possibility arose on the last day of November. I had just driven back to the house I now shared with my dad. That's when I found him on the kitchen floor, slumped in a corner, his artificial leg at an odd angle, fake foot still flat on the floor. He was in what doctors called a diabetic coma, an obvious result of his nonstop drinking. But it wasn't until I filled out the insurance paperwork that I understood exactly how I'd failed my dad. I copied his date of birth from his driver's license, August 28, 1947. I knew his birthday naturally, but it hadn't occurred to me until that moment. My father was a Virgo. Thank you. <laughs>
2: That was Jess Walter. His book of short stories is We Live in Water, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio. Tonight's show was brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, which presents A Brief History of the Desk. In 1733, Archbishop Thomas Drawer invented the drawer to mixed reviews in contemporary press. Later, in 1786, Sir Reginald Fitzdrawer Handel invented the drawer with handles, which helped. There's been very little development in the desk technology since then until now. Ergo Depot's Sit-stand desks allow you to work from a sitting, standing, or intermediary position at the flick of a switch. Fitz drawer handle would be proud. More information can be found at ergodepot.com. Next up on the show is a folk rock musician out of Provo, Utah, who's toured the country with John Mayer, David Gray, and Ani DeFranco, to name a few. He's performed at South by Southwest, Bonnaroo, and Lollapalooza, and his cover of the Herman's Hermits song, No Milk Today, was recently featured on the season premiere of FX's Sons of Anarchy. With songs from his latest record, From the Top of Willamette Mountain, please welcome Joshua James.
7: Well, I lived in that town Until I was 17 When I moved to the mountains That rose from the sea where they taught me to pray Each and every day They said if I didn't That the devil, he would take So I threw my hands up, and I spoke to the Lord. I said, I'm a sinner, an apocryphal poet. It seems that God wasn't near, for no words did I hear. Could it be I was talking to no one? the Lord might exist but he ain't quite the problem to the answers we've missed don't base your whole life off of one bad disguise cause you never know behind which mask he's looking now if there's comfort your religion that you seek
2: Joshua James, his latest record is from the top of Willamette Mountain. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. Our next guest would wear many hats if they could all fit over his truly epic hair. He can be best described as a looping, beatboxing, improvisational, and musical comedian or comic musician. The point is, you never know what's going to happen when he steps on stage, but you're in good company because neither does he. Reggie's performed on Conan, Jimmy Fallon, Comedy Central, Funny or Die, and IFC's Comedy Bang Bang, as well as sold-out live shows at South by Southwest, the Montreal Comedy Festival, and Upright Citizens Brigade. He's recently released a record of his Comedy Central performance, Alive at Central Park. Please welcome Reggie Watts to Livewire. <laughs>
0: Oh, hello, hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you f- uh, so much for having me on the show. I never get to be on shows that much anymore, and it's uh, wonderful to be here in Barcelona, and uh, we expect to see a lot of new models, uh, the new smartphones coming out uh, this fall. Uh, Galaxy Samsung is looking like a good leader in a lot of the smartphone application uh, marketplace, uh, competitors uh, for Q4 and Q3. Um, and i uh, very proud to be uh, a proud sponsor of these things. So thank you, LiveWire, for being a participant in the uh, mobile space. Uh, uh, for your listening uh, pleasure, uh, I would like to uh, put a little reverb on my voice, like this, and uh, and then take it off to show that I can do that. OK, <laughs> so... Here is the song I, I wrote, and this is, uh, goes out to all the live wires. Uh, no one likes a dead wire. <laughs> <laughs> Stay live. Okay, here we go.
4: I can't stop nothing that I can't put myself in danger. If lizards take the world by storm, then I'll be a victim of nature. <laughs> take away these wings I have and give away your shares. Cause my... Selling on a Christmas tree I got a little bit of rum I'm to miss out on me I got a hurtful looking film I'm thinking about my film Come on
0: Everybody go down to the live wire Don't touch the live wire, live wire We'll kill you, live wire, live wire We'll kill you, don't step on this stage Because it's not grounded properly Only professionals know how to tread carefully what? Live wire! Ouch! Oh. Death, 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 death
4: Don't touch the live wire, don't touch the live wire death, death Death, death, (laughs) don't touch your life, why? Don't touch your life, why? Don't touch your life, why? why? Why?
2: amazing. Thank you. Uh, you're listening to Live Wire Radio. We're here with Reggie Watts. Uh, he's a comic musician, beatboxer, looper. Anything else that you'd like to add to that list?
0: Sounds about right.
2: Good, good. <laughs> well, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, um, obviously you've got a musical aspect of what you do and a comic aspect of it. Um, a lot of comics go on stage and they kind of they start off with their safe material so that the audience will trust them. You don't have any of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in fact, you don't have any material. And so, how
0: <laughs> True.
2: How do you get the audience to trust you from the outset if, if they don't know who you are, if you're in a place where they don't know who you are?
0: I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a I think it has to do with the, the intent that you have as a performer like if you you know you come on stage and your intention is to you know uh, include people in a way somehow eventually um, into what you're doing Um, I think people can feel that to a certain extent and you just kind of have to trust that that's going to happen
2: yeah. Well, and one of the things that you say is that, is that you, really, you actually want to sort of discombobulate the audience and get them uncomfortable, which um, is, generally leads to really interesting work, but is also kind of uncomfortable for the performer, I think, usually. Um, how do you work <laughs> through that discomfort when the audience is still kind of...
0: No, I mean, it's, I guess a lot of it has to do with um, knowing that you have a nice treat at some point. It's like I'm, I'm, I, I have something in my pocket and I'm going to show it, but I'm just going to wait a little bit before I show it. But I'm really excited about it. So, so <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm pretty sure people will like it. Right. Or they'll just,
2: right. Or, or, yeah. No. Or they won't. <laughs> no. I have, I have totally had dates like that. Um,
0: yes. <laughs> yes.
2: Generally, was not excited to see it when it came out, right. but... But right. I feel like your situation is totally different. Oh, yeah, so, it's
0: related. Absolutely. Related. Related. Absolutely.
2: related. Um, so uh, I actually saw a piece that you did on Conan um, where you, it felt like you did maybe 30 or 40 different genres of music within one uh, three-minute period. And you were uh, an Air Force brat when you were a kid, and so you spent some time in Germany and Spain. Were you old enough at that point to be aware of music? What kind of music was playing in those places?
0: Well, I I don't remember specifically but I, I know my my parents listened to a lot of jazz and um my mom loved James Brown and my lo- and uh, you know uh she also listened to French folk music and uh so so those types of music were the you know Ray Charles those were the earliest things I remember listening to.
2: Mm-hmm. So as a comic, I think that the majority of comics who actually write out their material, uh, they spend a lot of time sort of looking for the absurd in the world so that they can take advantage of it um, and sort of expand it. Do you find yourself doing that? And if so, does it kind of change your view of the world a little bit?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, all the time. I mean, I love, but I love like taking ordinary things and, and making them absurd.
2: Yeah, you, yeah you know. I saw you do an amazing song about a giant purse one time.
0: Yes. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, that's just like noticing, you know, I just, my manager in particular always had very large purses. And, <laughs> but but I noticed that was a trend. And I was like, well, what's inside there? And then usually there'd be a smaller purse. And I'd be like, <laughs> be like, like why so many purses? Like, right, there's, like, there's right. too many purses. Uh-huh. And things that aren't purses, but basically are purses, you know. <laughs> pocket books things like that I don't know. Uh-huh. so um, yeah just absurd things or like just doing the, the most obvious thing but then like twisting it around in the dumbest way possible mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's usually what I enjoy doing
2: right it works really uh, well uh, it works really well uh, um, I've, I've also noticed that more and more of your work is showing up on YouTube, and um, I was wondering how you felt about that. People, I think there's this aspect of improv that feels like it's this ephemeral thing that, you know, that being there is sort of an honor because you get to see this stuff happen and you can never see it again. Mm-hmm. When people film it, does that, does that change things for you? Does it bother you in any way?
0: No, it never bothers me. It bothers other comedians, and I understand why, because they might be working on new material. Yeah. So if people film it and then they put it up on YouTube, you know, it kind of deflates the impact of their material, or other people Or people will show up at their next gig and say something about it. But for me, because I'm improvising, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I like it because it's a record of what I've done, because I, yeah. I may not do the same thing again. And so I don't really care. Like as many cameras and recording devices, it's totally great for me.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I just have uh, one, one more question. It's kind of a personal question. Um, so I, I went to watch a video of you covering Van Halen's Panama on YouTube mm-hmm. and this ad came on for a website called whatsyourprice.com and it's this website where wealthy men bid on dates with beautiful women. And so I just want to know what you think is worse, starting a relationship on this website or starting a relationship on ABC's The Bachelor.
0: Wow. Um. Well, I think uh, God, Which one's worse, did you say? Yeah,
2: which one do you think is a worse idea?
0: I, th- I think maybe the worst idea Would be the internet thing Because mm-hmm. at least The Bachelor There's like a structure to it And a vetting process And it's, it is a show And right. you can be aware that it is a show So you can kind of involve yourself In the way you want to mm-hmm. The other one's a little bit more of a uh, A higher risk
2: Prostitution situation?
0: Prostitution, yeah But <laughs> You know, but no money exchange, so it's not. Exactly.
4: I don't,
2: I don't. No, there's. Yeah. Um, well, I, well, I appreciate your opinion. I'm gonna. I'm I'll, I will use that actually okay, later okay. in my life. Good, um, thank you. <laughs> but but uh, so before you go, yeah. we actually have um, a, a sort of a game show that we'd like to play with you, okay. um, if you're up for it. So, uh, Darius, would you like to? Darius Pierce, everyone.
3: And now it's time to play. Man versus the Internet, where we pit an actual human man against the Internet. Tonight's human is Reggie Watts. And tonight's Internet is the Internet. This is how we play the game. We'll ask Reggie an arcane question in the categories of history, science, and language. And if he gives us either a correct or convincing answer... To all three questions before the internet spits one up, tell him what he'll win, Trisha.
5: He'll win this half-eaten bag of sour cream and onion potato chips.
3: Where, where where's the other half of the chips? Well, why would you have? We have host Courtney Hameister searching the internet for answers. The first question is in the category of history. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> Good, because here it is. This is a question about the First English Civil War. What technique did Lord Fairfax and the Earl of Manchester use to defeat the Royalists in the Battle of Marts and Moor on July 2nd,
0: 1644?
3: Uh, uh, Terrorist forest tactics? Court, what does the internet say? Um. Internet's too slow. Point for Reggie. (laughs) Next question is from the category science. Reggie, describe the reproductive process of the rare Fiordland crested penguin.
0: Uh, they, they hook wings and uh, spin uh, in a counterclockwise rotation down a slope and then eventually smash into each other um, with a 50-50 chance of
3: success. <laughs> And the internet's response?
2: Uh, they have a clo- cloaca, which is a sexual and excretory...
3: Reggie's answer is more believable. <laughs> you are defeating the internet, Reggie, and here <laughs> is your final question. It comes from us to us from the category language. Reggie, what's the definition of anti-disestablishmentarianism?
0: Uh, I guess it would be a respectful but violent uh, disruption into the commonly known practice of something civil, but not wanting to be as such for those who do not agree with the structural aspect <laughs> of that upon their very being. No, no, I'm just
3: That's the wrong. internet has conceded. <laughs> I hope you're half-hungry, Reggie, because you've just won yourself a half a bag of delicious sour cream and onion potato chips because you've out-clevered the Internet. Join us next time when we'll pit a regular person against Ask Jeeves just to make things fair. Thanks so much to Reggie Watts, and now back to Livewire. Reggie Watts, everybody!
2: All right, now it's time for some Q&A from our audience. Pop culture, relationship advice, science. You have questions, we have answers that may or may not be correct. Our live audience has written their queries and sent them to the stage, and now they will be answered enthusiastically and marginally accurately by tonight's cast and guests. It's Dear Live Wire. You've got questions.
3: We've got answers. We should totally hope Live wire.
2: <laughs> All right. Who's our first answer? Trisha Ferguson. Yes.
5: So Jasmine writes, Should I marry the rich guy? Oh, Jasmine, Jasmine, Jasmine. You marry the guy you love. Marriage is a magical thing between two people that should last forever. Shakespeare even writes, For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that when I scorn to change myself, my state with kings. Shakespeare says love itself is, is all the wealth that you will ever need in your whole life. So marry the guy you love. And as for the rich guy, just give me his name and number and he will be okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Trisha Ferguson. Laura Faye Smith. Well, Ben would
4: like to know who would win in a fight? A grizzly bear or a silver-backed gorilla? Geez, Ben, no one wins
2: in a fight. You should be ashamed of yourself. All right, Jess Walter.
6: Uh, Liz asks, what is a hipster? Um, I'm from Spokane, so whatever it is, I'm guessing it's not this.
2: (laughs) That's Jess Walter, thank you. And Darius Pierce?
3: (laughs) Chris writes... I have a recipe that requires a gill of water. How much is a gill? Well, Chris, as you know, the term gill comes from 600 near the banks of the Nile, before they had invented systems of measurement. So they would say a gill was what they needed, and they would measure it from the tail of a fish to the gill, because that's what they had in abundance, gills and fish. But your question is a little vague, because normally they'd say, I need a herring's gill, or I need a salmon gill, or a barracuda gill. So when you say, I have a recipe that requires a gill of water, my response is, no, you don't.
2: Darius Pierce, great job. Thank you for your questions. Great job on the answers to our cast and guests. Interesting answers, guys. Uh, Dear Livewire is brought to you by New Belgium Brewery, who, brewery, who presents Beer School. Beer doesn't grow on trees. That's obvious. Like three things grow on a tree. But the stuff that you make beer out of grows in the ground. Malt, hops, yeast, and water, stuff like that, which provides a little more context for New Belgium's New Dig IPA. Because you can get dumb old fruit in a tree, but you have to get your hands dirty to make beer. More information at newbelgium.com. live wire all right ladies and gentlemen once again telekinesis
7: you know it's got something to do with these spiders coming out and everything new because we need some time sitting onto the blue but you gotta be ever true so damn hard to give it away When the words come quick But there's nothing to say In the shortwave singles On a clear to say Well, you gotta be ever true Oh, you gotta be ever true Now you know it's such go. No matter what you say Is it easy to show No matter what you say, it's too easy to show
2: Jess Walter, Reggie Watts, Telekinesis, and Joshua James. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Haumeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theatre are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Haumeister, and performers Darius Pierce, Laura Faye Smith, and Tricia Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, Ben Coleman, and Chelsea Kane. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom, stage management by Mark Bauck. The show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele, photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio.